Upon whom does your salvation depend? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Where is Jesus Christ? He's at the right hand of God the Father on high. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be standing here. If I didn't believe that, I would not have anything to do with religion. If I didn't believe that, to me it would absolutely negate the entirety of the Word of God. Your salvation does not depend upon artifacts, does not depend upon sacred objects, it does not depend upon a piece of rock. It depends upon Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A metaphor is a representative or a representation of an object which is actually different from that which it represents, but might be similar in nature. We might say hot as copper. Well, copper is not hot, but because of the color. There are all sorts of metaphors that are used in the Bible. There are many, many metaphors and analogies that are used, parables by Jesus Christ. One of the great metaphors that is used over and over again, dozens of times, is that Jesus Christ is likened unto a rock. The 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy refers to God, the Elohim of the Old Testament, the JHVH, or the Jehovah God, as a rock many, many times. David wrote many times in the Psalms, He is my rock and my fortress. He is our rock and our hiding place. We sing the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. And we know that there are at least three words in the Hebrew, two main ones, and one other major word that is used, I think, just about the only word that is used in the Greek language, except it is masculine or feminine, Petra or Petros, that is used for rock or pebble or stone or a craggy cliff or a great monolith. People recently had a little of their faith shaken because they have moved the stone of Schoon, as they pronounce it over there. I confess to having mispronounced that for years because a Scot, a Scot never told me how to pronounce it. I thought it was the stone of Scone, S-C-O-N-E. As you know, it was recently removed from the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey up to Edinburgh in Scotland. This is the Associated Press report. After 700 years, England returns ancient stone of Scone, S-C-O-N-E, to Scots, Coldstream, Scotland. With a piper, toasts of whiskey, and a pinch of skepticism, Scots on Friday, and that is about three weeks ago or so, welcomed the return of the stone of Scone, an ancient symbol of sovereignty stolen by the English king 700 years ago. By the way, that was stolen after the time that these swords behind me were pounded into their present shape because they date back to the 1100s at the time of William the Conqueror. The rough-hewn block of gray sandstone weighing 458 pounds, attention please, even two fairly strong men would have a little bit of a struggle with 458 pounds, and also known as the Stone of Destiny had rested inside the coronation chair at Westminster Abbey since it was taken as war booty by King Edward I in 1296. I won't read all of this, but Michael Forsyth, who was a cabinet minister responsible for Scotland, important point, said, I remember my mother telling me it was taken by Edward I, it was ours and should be returned. And he said that most Scots ought to be thankful for that. The stone was removed from Westminster Abbey 
and escorted by members of the Coldstream Guards, after the village of that name on the River Tweed on the border of Scotland with England, on the 400 miles journey north to this border village. After an hour's delay because of a bomb scare that proved false, so it shows you that some people politically and or religiously are a little bit fanatical about the stone, and the fact that it was going to be carried to Scotland actually caused some people, unknown, to threaten the entire proceedings with a bomb. The stone was brought to the center of the bridge accompanied by a piper. Both the piper and Mr. Forsyth were treated to toasts of whiskey. From there, Scottish soldiers escorted the stone to Edinburgh, where conservationists will check on the need for any repairs before the stone goes on display November 30th at Edinburgh Castle. I won't read it all, but he says he thinks it's all political, that is, the Prime Minister uh, John Major did, because the Tories want it in Edinburgh because they hope to get political support from it. Well, the Tories, of course, are a major party in England. They're the opposition party to Major, and, of course, Scotland is a part of the United Kingdom. The Stone of Scone, pronounced Schoon, is the stuff of myths, including one that holds that it was used as a pillow by Jacob when he had his latter dream, as told in Genesis. Jacob's sons supposedly carried the stone to Egypt. From there, it was said to have been taken to Spain and then to Ireland, where it was placed on the sacred hill at Tara. When Irish kings were seated on it at coronations, it was supposed to groan aloud if the claimant was royal, but remained silent if he was a pretender. By seizing the stone, Edward demonstrated English supremacy, although the two countries were not united until 1707. The government said the stone will be brought back to take its place under the chair at future coronations. Important point. Many people believe that the Bible has somehow been compromised because they have read this book, Judah's Scepter and Joseph's Birthright, from which my father copied copiously when he wrote his original document, which was not original, but he got from other sources. This was the major source back before I was born and submitted it to the leadership of the Church of God Seventh-day Oregon Conference. Later on, he published a synthesis or a digest of that very lengthy document, which was called The United States and British Commonwealth in Prophecy. We probably sent out over a period of time, I don't know whether it was six million, seven million, or ten million, but it was certainly well over five million copies over a period of decades as a result of advertising that booklet both on radio and television. It copied rather copiously, as I said, from Judah's scepter and Joseph's birthright although it never mentioned J. H. Allen's name. This book was written ten years before the outbreak of World War I. It is obviously long since out of print, except that I think either Merrimack publishers or Destiny publishers, who have probably awakened to a keen interest that I think in some ways may have been sparked by the tremendous publicity my father and later on I gave to that theory, far more than the BIWF, of whom most of you have never heard, the British-Israel World Federation. I don't think they've had that much publicity in the United States, and I think that my father and I, the World Tomorrow program, probably, in a sense, made known and advertised the concept of the ten tribes of Israel being identified as Northwestern Europe and Britain as Ephraim and the United States as Manasseh more than any other religious organization that I know of. 
Many people have, over the years, decided to get themselves a copy, and they have read this book. There are some things in this book that are extremely doubtful and, I think, need a very cautious reappraisal. Not in the light of the Stone of Schoon being moved anywhere, because, again, I relate to you that it has not been moved out of the United Kingdom. It has not been moved out from under the realm or the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. It has been moved as if it were moved from, perhaps, Maryland to Texas, a part of the United States. But Scotland, of course, is a part of the United Kingdom, and Mr. Forsyth, whose name I mentioned, is the member of Parliament who is responsible for Scotland. So that's an important point to put down in your memory and remember. People think the following scriptures have been compromised. If you will turn to Ezekiel 21. And there is much made of this by the booklet that I mentioned and my father wrote so long ago. Verse 25, And thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end. The time setting is obvious. When iniquity shall have an end. On the other hand, the commentaries say when your iniquity has come to the full, or when iniquity has absolutely ripened to the point of overflowing, and where your iniquity is complete. Thus says the Lord Eternal, no question about this language, remove the diadem, and that is, of course, a symbol of royal office, and take off the crown, obviously, being deposed if you are a king. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, and abase him that is high. And many scriptures could be then quoted, I am meek and lowly, and Jesus Christ talking about being meek and lowly and despised and rejected of men. And he that is low, which is a reference to Christ, abased him that is high, which is the wicked, profane prince that is occupying a throne. I will overturn, and that is remove or overturn, obviously the meaning needs no additional elaboration, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more. Now, the word more is added by the translators in italics. It's obvious when it goes on to say, until he come whose right it is, that it continues to exist. So the implication of the verse is, I will overturn it, overturn it, overturn it, and it shall be no more overturned until he come whose right it is. A prophecy of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I will give it him. Here's what Alan says, and there are so many quotes here that I could eat up an awful lot of time with this, and I don't have that time because of the constraints of the television program that is going to be shown to our other groups all over the country, so I've got to hurry. But let me announce by way of interrupting myself, I'm intending to go to the radio studio and do perhaps an hour and a half or more on this subject for the sake of the number of people that have written to me or called me and are curious about it. And I've already done a great deal of research previously, but I've had to re-research it uh, in great detail here in the last couple of weeks, and I will commit to do that so you may have that. You can hear an audio tape, and that way you can listen over and over and over again. You can really hear it and get a lot of details that I will not have time to bring you here. On page 257 of Allen's book, Judas, Judas, Scepter, and Joseph's Birthright, further, there have been just three overturns of this kingdom. We just related that out of Ezekiel 21. The first, as we have shown, was from Palestine to Tara. Even the UP article mentioned that. In the plantation of Ulster, through Teatefi, Jeremiah's ward, the king's daughter, supposedly one of Zedekiah's daughters. 
The second overturn was from Ireland to Scotland through Fergus, who sent for Lyothale. That is also one of the names that, by which it was called in ancient Ireland. The Stone of Destiny, and had it brought from Tara to Iona, where he was crowned. The third overturn was from Scotland, which at that time was a separate nation, and they had their wars. That's how the stone ended up being down at Westminster Abbey. From Scotland to England. At this time, the throne was brought from Scotland and placed in Westminster Abbey, where it rests under the protection of the greatest monarchy on earth. Error. He said, at this time, the throne was brought from Scotland and placed in Westminster Abbey. It was nothing of the kind. A stone was brought, but not a throne. A throne is what? It's a seat. It's a chair. It's probably a very elaborate chair, because Solomon had himself carved a throne out of ivory. David probably sat on one of cedar. We have no knowledge whatsoever of the configuration, the height of the back, the width of it, the elaborate carvings, the materials from which it was made, of the throne of David. A throne is a chair. It's a seat. And it's a seat that probably a king or a queen sits on only once in his or her lifetime at the coronation. It's not their dining room chair. It's not their lounge chair. It's not their television chair. So a throne is a metaphor, isn't it? Because a throne really is a symbol of the government, of the rulership of that king, of his or her dynasty, of their position as royalty. Turn to the first chapter of the book of Luke. This is absolute. Regardless as to any concepts about holy or sacred artifacts, there's one thing we know for sure. Thousands of little children memorize this verse, and they get up and they chirp it before their classmates at Christmas time. When the Annunciation of the birth of Jesus Christ is made, the angel Gabriel was saying to Mary, and this is, of course, repeated endlessly by Catholics in the first chapter of Luke in verse 28, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. That's a part of the rosary, isn't it? And the Annunciation continues on. She was troubled. He said, Fear not, Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Yes, the Hebrew equivalent is Joshua, or Joshua with a hard J if you prefer. Iosius, or however it's pronounced in the Greek, the Aramaic is Jesus, English is Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Does that mean that God the Father was going to present Jesus Christ, even either then at his first coming or later at his second coming to this earth to govern it with a rod of iron, with a chair, with a seat made of cedar or ivory or gold or diamonds or anything else? No, of course not. It is a symbol of rulership. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given unto them, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. How wide of a throne does it have to be? Is that metaphor or not? Revelation 2.26, Revelation 3.21. To sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. To him that overcometh will I give power over the nations, Revelation 2.26, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be broken 
to shivers as a vessel. So again, it has nothing to do with a chair. It is metaphor that symbolizes power of a king, absolute power, the power in this case of God and of Jesus Christ. He shall give unto him the throne of his father David. David is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus Christ in the two genealogies in the Gospels, and of course is the son of Jesse, and is absolutely a part of the whole house of Judah from whom the scepter was never to depart, the promise that was given by Jacob, passed on from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to his children, the scepter that is the promise of a kingly line of a dynasty that would never cease, shall not depart from Judah, a promise of God. Now, time and again, in this kind of a study, this kind of an analysis of God's word, of some of the old biblical prophecies and some of the New Testament promises, you come straight right up against an incredible either-or, an absolute. And that absolute is, either God exists, and there is an all-wise, eternal Creator God, and either Jesus Christ is your Savior and sits at the right hand of God the Father on high, and either the Bible is His Word, or in each one of these cases, each time you see some of these things like this promise right here about the throne of David and of His kingdom, there shall be no end, or it's not true. And if it's not true, you can't trust any of it. Because if there is an error here, then how do you know there isn't an error over there? I have dealt all of my adult life with the loose brick approach by people who are seeking an excuse to somehow get out from under the weight of responsibility of obedience to God and of acceptance of His truth. And that is that they seem to look at biblical truth and doctrine as a great wall made of bricks. And they tug and they tug at this doctrine and that doctrine, and they think that they can find one that is a little loose. They pull it out, and to them the whole wall collapses, and it all comes tumbling down. The loose brick approach some people use. Recently some people were very upset because a man had written a book in which he is impugning and ridiculing Jesus Christ himself and the entirety of the New Testament. He sent us a book which now Vance is going to have to try to take his time, and he's so beleaguered, he is absolutely so overwhelmed with so much to do, and so am I, to try to help these people to understand something that they could understand if they would simply go out to a Bible bookstore and buy Halley's Bible Handbook and the Angus Bible Handbook and maybe just study their Bibles for themselves. And then they've got to understand something. Pardon my vernacular. Doctrine is not where it's at. Now, what I mean by that is, as I've said before, you cannot take a doctrine and stack it atop another doctrine and begrudgingly say, well, now, I see what you mean by that, but now let me study that. Well, all right, now, a few months later, I've proved that to myself. Now, all right, you've convinced me of that. Now, let's look at the Sabbath question. Now, let's look at the tongues question. Now, let's look at these annual holy days. Now, let's look at the clean and unclean meats question. Let's look at the tithing question. And little by little by little, they layer the doctrines. And little by little by little, they accept and they become convinced. You can't do that anymore, as I've said, that a young wife can go down to the baby bureau and make out a big list. I'd like it to be female, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, and grow up to be no more than five foot two and weigh 122 pounds with a 22-inch waist. 
That isn't the way you have a baby. And it isn't the way you get into God's kingdom. You get into God's kingdom by repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what if you're a black man? Mr. Bronson James, black man. We have many black people in God's church. We have Dr. Ricks, and we have others that are leaders in God's church. What if you're Filipino? What if you're Japanese, Vietnamese, Kampuchean, whatever? How do you get into God's kingdom? Galatians 3.29, If ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise God made to Abraham. Imagine a great spreading oak tree. God reiterated the promise to Isaac. The great spreading oak tree, we're looking at it, is the trunk of the tree, this huge big oak tree with deep roots in the soil, has a great main trunk that goes up. Out of that main trunk are great branches, and then many hundreds of smaller branches, and then thousands of little twigs. And way out on the end of one of those little twigs, a little bitty green twig, and into that twig people will dive all the way to the pith or the heart of it. It is a twig but they will become extremely interested in the twig. And like the old adage, you're standing too close to the tree to see the forest. Some people are so deep in the twig, they don't know where the trunk of the tree is. And they've lost sight of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It was repeated to his sons. And the prophecies in the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis are absolutely sure. And here we have this beautiful scripture that says to all the Gentiles, Peter had to learn it at the house of Cornelius. The Apostle Paul was sent to the Gentiles. There was racism, there was pride, there was exclusivity, there was an us-them feeling that prevailed among the Jews during Peter's day, and they had to overcome it. And the miraculous you know, vision of the sheet that was full of all of the mixed creatures and so on, and then the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit by actual manifesting the gift of speaking in languages had to convince them, well, then God has allowed the Gentiles also to receive salvation, because even Christ said, salvation is of the Jews. It doesn't mean the Jews in Israel today. It means the lineage of Jesus Christ, and that Christ was a Jew of the house of Judah, of the house and the lineage of David. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. But the promises were given through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, one of Jacob's sons, whose name is Israel. And the great Davidic covenant, and I better get to that in a hurry, I won't have time to get to it, is where God promised that David would never fail a man to sit on his throne, but would be in perpetuity here on this earth. It says, He shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Let's go back and take a look at that. In Second Samuel, the seventh chapter, if you will turn to that right quickly. And again, I will have a lot more time, I think, to go through a great deal of this when I do an audio tape on the subject. And I've already written, by the way, quite a lengthy article on it, so you'll be able to have that as well. Second Samuel, the seventh chapter. If you remember this part of the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant was at Kirjath-Jearim, and later on it was the, at the home of Obed the Gittite. 
They were blessed. David essayed to bring it up to Jerusalem, but Uzzah reached up to try to steady it. He was struck dead. A lot of you remember that, having read it a number of times. But finally, David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Question as we go along in passing. Please note, where was the Ark of the Covenant kept from the days it was first constructed? In the tabernacle, right? You all know that. It was kept in the tabernacle. When you read in about five straight chapters in the book of Exodus all of the details about the building of the tabernacle and the building of the ark, you read about staves and grates and sockets and trappings and tapestry and settings and the mercy seat and the cherubim and everything. And you read about the tables of stone of the Ten Commandments, stone made of rock, made of tables of stone, written with the finger of God, the one who became Jesus Christ. Sacred artifact? You bet. Not in themselves able to give you eternal life or to heal you if you touch them, but because they were written on stone, the most durable of all writing materials, and they expressed the love and the will of God, certainly looked upon as hallowed. And wouldn't it be incredible, there have been some weird movies that have been made on that theory, if the Ark of the Covenant were ever discovered. What do you think of automatically? in whatever amount of Bible knowledge and historical knowledge you have, as the most sacred artifacts that were in the tabernacle in the wilderness. The first thing you think of, Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark? The golden bowl that held the sample of manna, mentioned in the book of Hebrews by Paul. The rod of Aaron that budded, and that became a snake and devoured the snakes of the magicians, with which he struck the river. Also. The tables of the Ten Commandments. In the side of the ark, the scroll with its heavy brass fittings, that was the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. Have you ever, anyone in this room, any one of the maybe 2,000 people that will eventually see this tape or hear the audio tape, have you ever heard any mention in the entirety of all the biblical history you've read of there being a sacred stone that was in the ark? Was there a sacred stone beneath the ark? Was there a sacred stone that was in the tabernacle? No. You've heard of Jacob's pillar stone. Oh, but wait a minute. I didn't mispronounce that. Some people will think I meant the one he laid his head on. Why, no. The one he laid his head on, which was a pillow, and don't think that he put his head on a rock. He put down skins and probably the type of wools and other padding that they had, and to raise the head a little bit, which is a little more comfortable, he had the famous Jacob's Ladder dream while he laid his head, and he took a rock of that place. I don't know if he picked up one that weighed 458 pounds or not, but he had that dream, and then because of the enormous significance of the dream that was showing the reiteration of the promises to Abraham, Jacob, uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac, and then to Jacob, who was having the dream, he set up the stone. He was filled with awe and also guilt because he was a sinner. And he said, surely God is in this place. And he called it Bethel, the house of God. He anointed it with oil and set it up on end. Question, did he then pick it up, have some of his servants put it on an ox cart, and go traveling around with it? We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to look at it. But we need to keep it in perspective. We need to keep it in proper perspective. The seventh chapter of Second Samuel, I don't have time to read it all, but he says, verse 6, Whereas I have not dwelt in any house, 
And sometimes that stone is called by J.H. Allen the house of God. Some people think it is the shepherd's stone. Some people even think it is Christ or represents Christ. I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle, because his power and his presence was there. A great pillar, that means a great tall column of fire by day and a cloud by night. Oh, I interrupted myself. When I was talking about deliberately mispronouncing something, a pillar which is set up, as you know, the pillars and the columns of a big building, is an upright stone that was set up and then he anointed it, where a pillow is something he laid his head upon. It's not the same thing. Once he raised it up and poured oil over it, it became Jacob's pillar stone. Was it left right where it was, or is that it? that was carried up into Edinburgh Castle the other day. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why do you not build me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, perhaps allusion to the inheritance to the north, east, south, and west of the children of Abraham, and will plant them. Jeremiah was to root out, to pluck up, and then to build and to plant, perhaps an allusion to that, who knows, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall their children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. In verse 12, And when your days be fulfilled, David lived to be seventy-five, you shall sleep with your fathers. I will set up your seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Direct reference to Solomon, but also reference to the seed of David in perpetuity. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Little circled, capital letter P, by this prophecy in my Bible, that is a King James Version, as you can recognize, that indicates that even the translators knew that this is a prophecy that also refers to Jesus Christ as a type. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Does that mean the seat upon which he sat? No, it does not. Does it mean any artifact that he held in his hand? Does it mean a rock that was around or by him or under him? No, it means the rulership the authority, the dynasty, in perpetuity, forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. All right. If the prophecies say, and they do, that Jesus Christ is coming to inherit the throne of his father David, and we read in Ezekiel 21, there is going to be a wicked prince whose day shall have an end when iniquity shall be fulfilled, and he will come who will overturn it, and I will give it him whose right it is, exalt the one who is low, that's Christ, abase the one that is high, that's the wicked prince who sits upon the throne. The promises we have read say there will be the seed of David sitting on an earthly throne somewhere at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. They're not going to become co-regents. 
Christ is not merely going to say, move over and I will sit down beside you. No, he's going to be replaced. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. Try to listen fast. I'll talk fast, but that's why I say you need to read the article and the tape that I'll produce for you, God willing, because there's a great deal of interest here and a tremendous amount that I don't have time to cover in this one brief sermon. Isaiah 22, beginning in verse 15, Thus says the Lord Eternal of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna. I won't have time to turn back to 2 Kings 18, 17 and read all of that, but let me just tell you right quickly about the time when Sennacherib was about to attack Jerusalem. And it says that Tartan and Rabshakeh, Tartan meant commander-in-chief, and Rabshakeh was like the head of the captains, came and they talked to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Eliakim was the son of Hilkiah who was the high priest, and Eliakim is called over the house. That means the Lord High Chamberlain. It means like the chief of staff or maybe the head of the cabinet, directly under the king. And Shebna the scribe, the word Shebna, the name Shebna, is an heathen name. Either it is a foreigner or an heathenized Jew. Shebna is called the scribe when that terrible conversation takes place where there is collusion, there is an attempt at conspiracy. Why? Because they're standing on the wall, the people are shut up and beleaguered, there is a tremendous siege about to take place, Sennacherib is advancing from the north, and here come Tartan and Rabshakeh, and they make this ugly statement, you can read it in the Bible in that chapter I'm talking about, about what they're going to do to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the men on the wall, including Eliakim and Shebna and Joash, the recorder, say, Oh, speak to us, please, in the Syrian language. Don't speak to us anymore in the Jews' language, lest the people on the wall hear you. Later on, do you remember that God sent Sennacherib back and that the entire Assyrian army was destroyed? And then God added 15 years to Zedekiah's life, and later on, here came the, Babylon, the uh, Assyrian king and absolutely sacked it as a result of a terrible mistake that was made when he allowed the Assyrians to come in and to go completely through his treasure house, showed him all the crown jewels and all that he had, which did nothing but whet the appetite of the pagan Assyrians who were trying to get their hands on all of that wealth anyway. So something was going on. You'll have to go back and read that for yourself, but it's in the article. You can read it when I have it ready for you or in the tape. Somebody changed positions. Something happened. Now, I related that to you. Remember that Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was like the Lord High Chamberlain. He was over the house. Shebna is merely a scribe. That is, a writer or a secretary, a male secretary. That's all he was, a scribe. Ah, but read this. Later, during the days of Manasseh, after the treasure house had been shown, Manasseh, one of the evil kings in that entire dynasty, thus says the Lord Eternal of hosts, Go get you unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna. How did he get to be the treasurer, do you suppose? Before that, he was merely a scribe, which is over the house, but Eliakim had been before. Look at the language. What hast you here? And whom do you have here that you've hewed you out a sepulcher here? You know, a sepulcher, the greatest in the world, is the great pyramid at Giza. And kings and pharaohs would build gigantic sepulchers and graves for themselves as a great symbol of wealth and power for their transition to the afterlife and the other world. And it would sometimes cost thousands of lives. Again, look at the pyramids. So this is reference to that kind of activity. 
that you've hewed you out a sepulcher here, is he that hews him out a sepulcher on high and that graves an habitation for himself in a rock. Seer, sewer, selah. The Hebrew word merely means a great, huge cleft, of a huge uh, side of a rock or side of a mountain. Not a little bitty pebble, not a stone, not a 458-pound rock, but the great side of a rocky mountain where you would build a sepulcher. Behold, the Eternal will carry you away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover you. He will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country. And there shall you die, and there the chariots of your glory, you know, great famous, pompous people like to have fantastic chariots, some very wealthy people like five Cadillacs, five Rolls Royces. Some of them have gold and all kinds of things all over the things that they ride around in because it's a display of power and of wealth. And this man apparently was doing that. There the chariots of your glory shall be the shame of your Lord's house, and I will drive you from your station, and from your state shall he pull you down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. Now look at the language. It is a type, isn't it? Eliakim is typical, someone else. And strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, could not be said of any man, and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Revelation 3, 7. Jesus, in his own words, he that saith that he has the key of the house of David, so that he opens and no man shuts, or he shuts and no man opens. What is a key? A key is to turn a lock. A lock is on a door. So a key either locks a door and shuts it so nobody can get in, or it opens the door so that people can enter. Men do not do that. The law of the Persians and Medes notwithstanding, so let it be written, so let it be done. Immediately it was brought to pass, etc. No, no. This is talking about Jesus Christ. The key of the house of David. What is the house of David? It's the dynasty of David. The lineage of David. It's absolutely locked up. It is utterly a sure thing. He will inherit the throne of his father David and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. It's only spoken of. Jesus Christ as having and possessing the key of the house of David, Revelation 3-7 in a red-letter Bible, red letters in his own first-person quotation. This can refer to none other but Jesus Christ, who is typified by Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Where is Eliakim here? He's not over the house. Nowhere to be seen. A usurper. The treasurer Shebna. An heathen name, apparently. An heathenized Jew or a foreigner. Somehow, as we read the language of graving for himself an habitation in the rock, through some conspiratorial movement, has gotten possession of the office of Eliakim. Look at the language then. I will lay upon his shoulder, the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open, and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. He shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house." And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels, a small quantity, from the vessels of cups to the vessels of flagons, talking about all of the artifacts of the uh, royal household and the tremendous treasure house and the wealth. And it merely is really a symbol of everything, the whole thing, nothing left out. In that day, saith the Eternal of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down, 
That's whoever is sitting on the throne when Jesus Christ comes. And in type, it was Shebna back during that day, and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Eternal has spoken it. Very, very interesting. Turn to Isaiah, the 28th chapter, where you find another prophecy that is talking about the same thing. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. I find that is fascinating. The Companion Bible proves that that is put by a figure of metonymy, which has to do with the representative of the entirety of the house of Israel. It's not just talking about one tribe. Woe to the crown of pride of the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. Could you ever apply that to the once proud British Empire? When J. H. Allen wrote that book, 1907, the British Empire was not quite at its zenith. It probably reached its zenith after that time, and probably it wasn't at the close of World War II because it was so terribly, terribly afflicted by the end of World War II, both economically and later on with the anti-colonial movement that rendered away all the possessions of Ephraim from around the world. That is another story that would take me an hour to relate, from the Nicobar and Andaman Islands to the Straits of Gibraltar to the Gulf of Suez to all over the world, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, what more can you say? The British Empire boasted that the sun never set on the British Empire, but there was a great deal of white supremacy in that doctrine. There were even those who carried it so far that just as you can read in the Catholic Encyclopedia about Daniel 2.44 about the Holy Roman Empire, Pax Romana, they began to think that at the conversion of Constantine, the kingdom of God had actually come and that the stone that was cut out without hands, it smote the image on its feet and the whole pagan image collapsed was the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church and that it was, in a sense, God's kingdom on earth. There are people that carried the concept of British supremacy, the Stone of Schoon, Lyophil, the so-called Shepherd's Stone, the Stone of Destiny, to an absolute ridiculous conclusion, and had a lot of white supremacy and racism mixed in with it to where they thought, like the beautiful song that we hear, Rule Britannia, and a beautiful song, they'll always be in England, and England shall be free, remember that, and the great music, and the literature, and the culture of those people. But look today. Why should I comment? Look today, not only at the dismantlement and disintegration of the British Empire, not only at the economic plight of the United Kingdom, but the royal family itself and the troubles that are there. There will be, according to God's promise, a human being seated upon the throne of David somewhere on this earth. Is it Japan? No, of course not. Is it China, Russia, Azerbaijan? Certainly not Saddam Hussein, is it? Where would you look? Where would you find a company of nations? Where would you find a multitude of nations and a great brother nation, same people, same language, same everything, where the great brother nation that was the eldest became, or the youngest, became the great single nation, the greatest single nation on the face of the earth, and Ephraim was to become a company of nations. I find it fascinating that the queen of a space-age nation was coronated sitting on a stone. Do I think that stone is in some way so sacred 
that it represents something so holy or so sacred that it has something to do with my salvation? Absolutely not. No, I look at that great trunk of the tree, and then I look out at the limb and another smaller branch, and then out at a twig, and that's an interesting twig, and it's a beautiful tree. And there may be something historically, maybe it came along with Teotete and a ship of Dan, the Tuatha de Danann were the earliest arrivals in Ireland, remember. That's Irish history. That's not biblical. That's profane history. And there was an old patriarch who had a scribe named Brack or Barak, and you read of Jeremiah and Baruch. And there really was a young lady named Teotefi who married King Harriman. And there really were the kings of Ireland who sat on a stone. And there really were the kings of Scotland who sat on a rock. And there really is the stone of Schoon. And it really was under Queen Elizabeth's chair when she was crowned. And it will be brought back from Scotland and placed in that same chair if and when Prince Charles is crowned. Or Andrew, or whoever is the successor. Who is the modern Shebna? I can't tell you that I know, that I know his name. Who is the modern crown of pride? Someone will be occupying a throne that is the throne of David, who will actually apparently die in a captivity, will be terribly punished, and Jesus Christ is going to come to inherit the throne of his father David. This prophecy is inescapably a reference to Christ. Verse 2, Behold, the Lord has a mighty and a strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with a hand the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looks upon it sees whether it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, or shall the Eternal of hosts be for a crown of glory, for a diadem of beauty, under the residue of his people, that's Jesus Christ. And look across the page, if you're able to, at verse 16, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord Eternal, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Does that mean a literal piece of rock from someplace? Jesus is at once the capstone. He's the head of the corner. He is the chief cornerstone. That's metaphor. Jesus is Jesus. He is now at the right hand of God the Father, a part of the divine sovereign family of God. But by metaphor to understand, if you look on the back of your dollar bill, I'm not into pyramidology, but I am a little curious about some of the symbols and the twigs along the way that demonstrate where the lost ten tribes went. And the only structure known to human being where the headstone, the capstone, and the cornerstone are one and the same, is the form of the pyramid. And the capstone is missing, and in its place is an eye. And it's kind of interesting when you read in American history who it was that designed that and why. Yes, I'm interested, but I'm not spooky about it, and it doesn't represent my salvation. And there are going to be millions of people who are going to repent during the days of the Great Tribulation and the heavenly signs who will not know anything about where are the lost ten tribes of Israel. Now let me share something with you that I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that this is so. 
I don't think it's important for any of the people in Africa or Asia or Central or South America or Southeast Asia or India to know about the identity of the Lost Ten Tribes. I don't think it is essential or important for millions of Americans to know it because it is not essential for their salvation for them to know it. But I believe it is essential for the watchman to know it. Now, in concluding, let me remind you several important points which may render any concern whatsoever about the authenticity or the significance of that stone moot. One, Scotland is a part of the United Kingdom. Two, it is governed by the British Parliament and acknowledges Queen Elizabeth II as its sovereign. Three, it is represented by a member, Mr. Forsyth, of the Parliament in London. Four, royal families all over the British Isles, all over Europe, even to Austro-Hungary, uh, Hungary, even to Italy and Spain in the past, even to the Romanovs of Russia, to Germany, when Kaiser Wilhelm was a first cousin of the King of England, and they went at it in World War I. Again, royal families all over the British Isles, all over Europe, as distant as Russia, have been close relatives and come from the same bloodlines, which is the lineage of David. They are of the house of Judah. They're not Jews the way we think of Jews, because we tend to put that label on people who are basically Levi or Simeon and don't even know who and where Simeon might be because they had no inheritance in the land. And they're not Jews religiously. But the British royal family, there are any number of organizations that trace their lineage right straight back to King David in the Bible through Edward I, who took that stone and put it in Westminster Abbey in the first place. And it's not just the British-Israel World Federation. Many other people who do that, and you can get one of those genealogical charts. I don't know from which source, please. I don't know. But I know that I have seen one. I don't have one in my possession. Many genealogists and historians have drawn those charts that show the British royal family to be of the house of Judah and to have descended from King David. Five, the stone will be returned to the coronation chair at any future coronation. Now, having noted those facts, certainly no one is going to think for one instant that the removal, the removal of a rock weighing about 585 pounds from Westminster Abbey up to Edinburgh Castle represents some kind of a failing of Scripture or the breaking of a prophecy. Certainly not. Again, as I asked at the beginning, in whom is your salvation? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Remember to look at the trunk of the tree. He, metaphorically, is the rock of our salvation. But your salvation and mine does not depend upon the authenticity or the significance of any particular piece of rock anywhere on this earth that I know about.